1: you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 2. We're going to be reading John chapter 2, 13 through 22. John chapter 2, Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together as a church and to open your scriptures and to uh, learn about you and your character from uh, the scriptures that you have given us, Lord. And so we thank you for this opportunity that we have. We do pray that you would help protect us from error and that you would help us to learn great things from your word. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Now, it is easy to look at the world and to see many, many manifestations of anger. Uh, Perhaps the most common forms of anger that we notice are the loud forms of anger. And I'm sure that we're all aware of the danger that this type of anger presents to relationships. Uh, After all, most people typically do not like being screamed at, yelled at, having things Uh, thrown at them. Uh, No one likes to be on the receiving end of loud anger. And generally speaking, the more frequently that uh, people are on the receiving end of such anger, the more natural it is to either withdraw or to try to, in an angry way, confront uh, the anger that is presented to you. And so people do respond to anger in different ways. Sometimes people will uh, attack. Sometimes people will flee. But uh, generally speaking, we, we, we don't like being around people who are characterized by loud anger. Uh, yet it's also the case that there are other forms of anger. It's not just loud anger that's the only form of anger. Uh, there, there, There is explosive types of anger, but then there's also quiet uh, forms of anger. And it's not just the explosive forms of anger that bring uh, damage or harm to relationships. It's also the quiet forms of anger. Uh, anger that do the same sort of thing maybe in different sort of ways and so uh, it, it is difficult to enjoy being around people who are constantly irritated bothered impatient frustrated discouraged depressed annoyed disappointed or bitter uh, as i said there's loud anger there's quiet anger there's anger that we reveal and we express there's anger that we try to hide and conceal uh, but the sad reality is for many of us anger is a daily reality We all do know what it's like uh, to feel like you are walking on eggshells around other people, wondering whether or not they're going to blow up, or whether or not that uh, your actions will in some way be the source of their their displeasure. Uh, We we do know what it's like interacting with with people who have countless unspoken expectations that we constantly seem to be failing to meet. Uh, We we, we do know what it's like to try to avoid bosses or please... uh, Uh, trying to please unreasonable family members and friends. Uh, Further, we do know what it's like living in an irrational sort of society that doesn't know how to identify personal responsibility for our feelings and our reactions. So we do live in a society that is constantly trying to find new ways to be offended. Uh, It does seem that many have now accepted the burden to fall over ourselves trying to cuddle uh, angry people excuse their destructive behavior, blame their reactions on others, and without question, obviously apologize whenever someone is simply anger, angry for whatever reason, so long as that per- person is uh, perceived to have the necessary credentials of victimhood. So the point being is that uh, the, while we do experience anger, we do interact with anger, whether with uh, our closer, close personal friends, family members, uh, work relatives – uh, etc. The problem is not simply out there. So uh, we, we we all know that as you deal with the subject of anger, it's not just a problem that other people deal with. We have a great capacity for anger. Uh, many Christians, many professing Christians spend their lives in bitterness and frustration. Uh, we can be enormously petty as Christians. We can take offense at the slightest provocation. We can expect others to read our minds uh, and always be ready to Respond to whatever demands that we might make of them. Uh, we can take great personal offense when anyone disagrees with us or fails to validate us or affirm our views. We can unashamedly talk about how stressed out we are and post these things to social media, uh, telling, uh, telling others openly and without embarrassment all the things that make us angry and frustrated. Uh, we can treat our children and our family members as if they're inconveniences and obstacles to our happiness. Now, in contrast to the spirit of the age and the state of our hearts, uh, the practice of our society, the Bible does tell us to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from us along with all malice. Now, the problem of sinful anger is obviously an enormous one. It's one that we need to take more seriously, knowing that the wrath of God, or the wrath of man, does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Uh, As much as we are used to saying not even a hint when it comes to sexual lust, we need to think about not even a hint when it comes to sinful anger. Uh, Yet, at the same time, isn't it possible to be righteously angry? Isn't it true that God is angry with the wicked every day? And if we are uh, individuals who are striving to be like uh, the kind of God that we serve, the kind of God who's angry with the wicked every day, wouldn't that mean that we should be angry at wickedness? And wouldn't that mean that we should be... Uh, angry at the, the sinful acts of human beings, beings around us. Uh, now, if that's the case, if, if, if in some ways we're trying to live a life uh, that is modeled after the life of Christ and the character of God, wouldn't it be important to know the difference between sinful anger and righteous anger? Wouldn't that be the sort of thing that we should be striving to uh, determine? Uh, now, in order to distinguish righteous anger From unrighteous anger, we do need some sort of diagnostic uh, criteria that we can use to evaluate our anger. Now, if you observe humans for any length of time, then you will realize that we do have an enormous capacity for self-justification. So as I said, we need some sort of criteria to distinguish sinful anger from righteous anger. But then if you, if you interact with people, you observe people, you know that we, we do have a great capacity for self-deception, uh, self-justification. As a, as a result, uh, it is true that the typical criteria that we use to uh, judge our anger to determine whether or not it is righteous is the following. First, is it my anger that is directed towards someone else? That may be the first, uh, most important way that we use to distinguish whether or not the anger is righteous or unrighteous. Is it my anger that's directed at someone else? If yes, then uh, it's obviously going to be righteous. But then if it's someone else's anger directed towards me, then we're naturally tempted to think, well, it's obviously going to be unrighteous. So because of the capacity we have for self-deception, the natural temptation we're going to face is to justify anger whenever it's ours, and condemn anger whenever it's someone else's. Uh, also, we may uh, think uh, maybe perhaps it's not my anger being directed towards someone else, but maybe it's someone else's anger directed towards someone else or something else that I obviously disapprove of. And so if it's someone else's anger that's uh, directed towards something that I dislike or, or uh don't approve of, then I'm going to determine that that is righteous. Uh, But then if it's someone else's anger directed towards someone I love or care about or something I love or care about or value, then obviously that's going to be unrighteous. Now, if uh, it's obvious when you look at these two unspoken sort of criteria that many people use to determine whether or not anger is righteous or unrighteous. We need something more extensive than that, don't we? Uh, You know, if that were the case, then uh, we'd be in a hopeless uh, paradox uh, with which we can never really in any objective way evaluate anger now today we're going to walk through an instance of righteous anger in the bible and try to advance a set of criteria that we can use to evaluate our anger and the anger of others to determine whether or not it's righteous and it will be important to realize that in order for our anger to be righteous uh, it really needs to meet at least five characteristics i'm not trying to say that these characteristics are going to be exhaustive but it, very least, it needs to uh, match these five characteristics. And so, it's not enough for our anger uh, to be uh, conceived of as righteous if it only meets one or two of these criteria. Uh, An instance of anger needs to meet at least all five of these criteria in order to be righteous. Now, the first uh, criteria that we see when we look at this passage of Jesus uh, cleansing the temple is the question. Uh, that we ought to be asking if we're trying to determine if our anger is really righteous. The main question we ought to be asking is uh, the question, is your anger a response to sin? Uh, John 2, 12 through 14 uh, describes uh, Jesus uh, coming and observing a specific sort of situation. Uh, John 2, 12 says, After this he went down to Capernaum and with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. Uh, now, the situation was the Passover of the Jews was at hand and the Jews went up to Jerusalem and Jesus uh, finds himself in the temple and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there. So uh, the perhaps the most important question we ought to ask when we're seeking to determine whether or not our anger is righteous is the question, is our anger a response to? To sin, There's really no more basic question to ask of anger than this. Is my anger responding to sin? Now, uh, you, if you want to word that question in a bit of a different way, you may say, whose standard has been violated uh, that my anger is responding to? Is it God's standard or is it my standard? Now, the reality is that only God has the right to enforce his standards on other people. Ultimately, I do not get to define what is right or wrong. God does. I do not get to tell people what to do by appealing to my authority alone. I am a creature just like every other creature who is created in the image of God. There is an equality in all of God's creatures such that uh, none of us gets to stand in judgment and condemnation over each other without some appeal to some greater authority beyond ourselves. So I don't get to um, simply just appeal to my authority and what I want to happen in the world and enforce that as a standard on everyone else. And so when I am angry, I ought to ask myself, why am I angry? What's happening? Uh, what, sort of, uh, what is happening that my, I, I'm responding to in anger? Is, this, uh, is my anger directed towards a violation of someone else's standard or simply my own uh, standard that I've come up with? Uh, let me give you a situation. John's on his way home from work, from a hard day at work, and he just wants to have some peace and quiet. As a result, he calls his wife and asks her to send the kids to their room so that when he comes home, he can have some space. As he goes to sit down on the recliner to watch TV, he notices that there are toys all over the living room. And he starts to think to himself, how am I supposed to relax when this place is such a mess? After hearing the distant sound of children banging On the walls in their room, John's frustration builds. Finally, his wife walks into the room and begins to ask him if he wants something to drink. And before she can get the question out of her mouth, John explodes saying, I told you I wanted some peace and quiet. Is that too much to ask? How am I supposed to relax when this place is a mess? I have kids banging on the wall, and I can't even have a few minutes without being interrupted. Now, uh, that may be a bit of an extreme example of anger, but the question we ought to ask ourselves is, is this a situation that describes righteous anger or sinful anger. And I think we would obviously say that this is uh, probably sinful anger from start to finish, uh, unreasonable demands, unreasonable expectations. Uh, But the further sort of question we ought to ask is what makes it sinful anger? Why is it different from uh, many of the situations and the expectations that we might have? Now, I think what makes it different is from start to finish, uh, the man who's responding in sinful anger isn't uh, responding to violations of God's standards, but just arbitrary and unreasonable standards that He's made up Himself. And so this is true regardless of whether or not the standard that He's made is unreasonable, even, right? Now, that's, this is clearly an example of an unreasonable standard that He's made, uh, an unreasonable sort of expectations that He has. Uh, but regardless of that, the main question we have to ask is what sort of standard is being violated? Now, when we come to this passage in John, One of the things to realize is that Jesus wasn't simply having a temper tantrum because he didn't get his own way or had his preferences violated in some way. Uh, It's not as if Jesus is walking into the temple saying, how dare you paint the temple with that awful color without consulting me or this place smells like a zoo I want to throw up in my mouth. Uh, What are you doing bringing these gaudy tables in here without asking me? Right. And so this is obviously not a situation where Jesus is just uh, acting like a spoiled and selfish brat, angry, anger, angry and enraged at the thought that anyone would violate his preferences or not value his opinion or uh, dare not to consult him when they make certain decisions. Right. So when you think about the situation that Jesus is responding to, uh, the situation is that that All of the Jews are going up to Jerusalem at this point to celebrate the Passover. What is the Passover? Well, the Passover was a religious ceremony, festival that's modeled after God's mighty redemptive act that we see mentioned in the Exodus, where God, with a mighty hand, brings the Israelites out of Egypt, he redeems them from the bondage of slavery. And we know that in doing so, he had made a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians uh, by uh, passing over the firstborn of the Israelites and then acting in judgment upon the firstborn of the uh, Egyptians. Now, we know that he did this by uh, instituting the Passover there as a a meal that they were to partake of in haste. They were to sacrifice a lamb Uh, wipe uh, the blood of the lamb on the the doorpost uh, of their house on the top and on the sides so that God would know to pass over the Israelite houses and not uh, act in judgment on the firstborn of the children of Israel, but then to uh, act in judgment on all those who did not have this uh, great sign uh, that, that God had instituted there. So uh, this celebration of the Passover was meant to be a yearly feast that the Jews would have. Now, everyone was meant to come to Jerusalem, uh, eat the Passover meal with their family, and anyone who didn't do this, who didn't come and do this, would be cut off from the people. And so this is an important uh, event in the life of the Israelites. And And when Jesus comes to the temple and he sees that there's money changers uh, in the temple, uh, the main thing to realize is that God is responding to a situation where you have the religious leaders of the day who are functionally extorting the people of God, uh, racking up exorbitant charges for the necessary means that they're going to be uh, using to uh, ensure that they have uh, dealt with their sin in the way that God had instituted it. And so here you have a, a The Israelites coming to celebrate God's redemptive act, passing over their sin, uh, not acting in judgment on them. Uh, They're seeking to come and to worship him and thank him for his uh, graciousness to them and overlooking uh, the sin. And that they have uh, obviously acted uh, against him. And and here you have the religious leaders of the day who were using this as an occasion to make money, right? So when Jesus comes and he sees the, uh, the Jews extorting his people in this way, and, and in many ways it's probably also a reaction to the fact that you have all of these tables and uh, these money changers that are set up in the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles are supposed to be worshiping God, and that's the only access to him that they have, and so functionally they're an obstacle to that as well. But uh, as you see, uh, when Jesus comes into the temple and sees that his worship is being profane, uh, he responds in anger. And one of the things to realize is that his anger is not simply a self-centered fit that he's having because he's not getting his own way. Um, This is an instance where he has a righteous passion that is directed towards those who would violate God's standard of worship. And so when we think about the kind of anger that we have, we ought to ask ourselves, is our anger like Jesus? Now, how do you how do you do that? Well, first, the most primary question you ought to ask is when I feel angry, when I feel frustrated, when I feel upset, when I feel discouraged, uh, when I feel depressed, when I feel uh, mad at other people, offended at other people, what what sort of offense am I responding to? Is this about sin, or is this just about what I want to happen in the world? Whose kingdom purposes am I uh, seeking to advance? Is this about God's kingdom purposes being violated, or is this about my preferences being uh, violated? And so as, the, the, as you consider evaluating your anger, the anger of those around you, against the standard of the scripture, scripture, the most basic question you ought to ask is the question, is my anger in, in response to sin? And so the only way you're going to be able to answer that question correctly is that you know what the Bible says about what uh, God's purposes and will are for his creatures in um, this age. The second major question that we ought to ask ourselves is the question, Is your anger controlled, principled, and proportional to the, to the offense? Uh, we see this from verse 15. And Jesus making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And so we see that obviously when Jesus uh, experiences righteous anger, he does express it in, in a very loud and noisy way. Now the question we want to ask ourselves What is the question, was Jesus completely unhinged? Did he see red? Was he kind of foaming in his mouth in anger? Was his brain, maybe another way to put this would be to say, was his brain completely disengaged from the process? Uh, you know, Would you, if you were in that situation, uh, wonder if Jesus is about to kill you? Uh, is this the kind of reaction that Jesus is having? And so we ought to ask ourselves, is our anger controlled, principled, and proportional to the defense? What kind of G- anger did Jesus have at this moment? Well, In order to get at some sort of answer to this question, you may want to consider the fact that Jesus cleansed the temple according to divine plan. Now, there's actually two cleansings of the temple... Uh, that Jesus enacted, which in in many ways bracket his ministry. So you see a cleansing of the temple that starts at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in John, uh, but then in the Synoptic uh, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see that uh, his ministry is ending with a a second cleansing of the temple. And so in some ways, uh, one of the things to realize is that Jesus' ministry is bracketed by two sorts of cleansing. Now, why would that be the case? Well, it's because this uh, uh, Jesus uh, primarily brackets his uh, ministry in opposition to this religious system, which ultimately is going to uh, fail to understand that he is the Messiah, but ultimately is a source of oppression for the people, binding on the people, heavy burdens which they're unable to bear. Uh, You you see right before the second cleansing of the temple that Jesus is giving a a lengthy uh, description of woes, uh, woes. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees and the hypocrites who bind on people heavy burdens uh, who oppress others who destroy widows' houses. Uh, you see that uh, you see in observing these things that cleansing of the temple is not an accident in the divine plan. Now, Jesus did all things according to the will of the Father he knew when he walked into the temple what he was going to see he knew how he was going to respond, and so this wasn 't just some uh, sort of uh, out of control. Uh, unprincipled, out-of-proportion reaction to some sort of minor things. Uh, If you look at the world the way God looks at it, then one of the things that you will realize is that the most important thing to God is that we worship Him in accordance with the way that He instructs us to worship Him. And here you have a situation which is uh, where the worship of God is being completely perverted and distorted, uh, and Jesus is obviously responding to that in a very intentional way Uh, trying to demonstrate in a very physical way the seriousness of what is being done. Now, I think as you look at the world and look at the way that we typically respond in anger, I think we could think of countless examples of times in which uh, our uh, anger is neither controlled nor principled or nor even proportional to the offense. Uh, Many times our anger is simply reactionary. We're reacting to things that we uh, don't like in the moment. It's not on the basis of principled conclusions that we've come to, which are precious to us. Um, uh, Most of the time when we get simply angry, we are completely out of control. We don't often know how we're going to respond, what's going to happen. People are right to be afraid for their lives around us Uh, You know, if, if our anger is explosive enough. Um, I can just give you an example of parents at soccer games. And you ought to realize exactly what it is that I'm talking about when I'm talking about anger that's expressed in a non-controlled, non-principled, and uh, un, uh, anger that's uh, not pr- at all proportional to the offense. Uh, we all know what I'm talking about when I describe a parent at a soccer game where a bad call is made by the ref and uh, a parent is screaming and red-faced on the side of the field. Uh, letting everyone in the world know how uh, egregious this offense was and how monstrous it was and uh, how much of an insult it was. And we can all picture exactly what I'm talking about there, but that's not the only example. I mean, just observe people in traffic and you will see, uh, just listen to the way people talk when they drive and you will see that our anger is often uh, lacking control. It's unprincipled and it's way out of proportion to the actual offense that we're, uh, responding to, and so the second criteria that we want to look at when we're thinking about whether or not our anger is righteous or unrighteous is the uh, principle: is our anger controlled? Is it principle? Is it proportional to the offense? Uh, third, we ought to ask ourselves: Is our anger God-centered? Now, when Jesus comes into the temple and he sees what's happening it is uh, somewhat remarkable to consider the way that he responds, okay? Uh, This is uh, fairly remarkable considering the fact that Jesus is God. Uh, Yet, when he comes into the temple and he sees the money changers, he sees the uh, extortion that's happening, he sees the disruption of worshiping uh, that is happening, uh, the text says in verse 16, "...he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade." Now, what is striking about the nature of the offense that Jesus takes is the fact that Jesus uh, is not primarily responding to personal offense. He's not even primarily uh, being other centered in the way that he's expressing his anger. Uh, primarily uh, Jesus's anger is God-centered. And so we ought to ask ourselves when we're evaluating the sort of anger that we have and the sort of anger that we're expressing, we ought to ask ourselves, are we expressing it in a God-centered way? Uh, Let me point out once again, Jesus' response is to say, take these things away, do not make my father's house of trade. So notice the language. Now, why does this make sense? Are people being oppressed at this time? People being robbed or people being extorted, are you taking advantage of people who've traveled a long ways and uh, don't have access to the necessary things which they need to uh, uh, purchase in order to sacrifice for their sin? Are you taking advantage of people? Yes. Uh, Is this a human rights violation? Yes. Are people being prevented from worshiping God? Yes. So why why does Jesus respond the way he responds? Because ultimately, all sin is primarily a sin against God, isn't it? Isn't there uh, more to human sin against each other than just uh, a horizontal uh, transaction of offense? Isn't there something that's more foundational and primary to our sin than uh, it simply just being expressed uh, in violation of others' uh, rights and privileges and everything else? Doesn't David say in Psalm 51.4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, when David writes that, isn't this after he's already had an affair and committed murder? So how can David say, uh, in response to what he had just done, he had uh, sinned against uh Sinned against Uriah, he'd uh, murdered Uriah, sinned against Bathsheba. In some sense, he's represented the nation, he'd sinned against the whole nation. How could David say against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? How can he do that? Well, ultimately, all of our sin is foundationally and primarily sin against God. Now, um, it's God who makes the standard, so when you're talking about is our is our anger the response to sin, ultimately it's God who gets to define right and wrong, not us, right? Now, if we are simply just the product of blind evolutionary chances, uh, in what sense does it make uh, to have any sort of moral uh, outrage against anything that anyone else does? I mean, if we're just animals, animals don't agonize over the... Uh, oppression that they perform on others, do they? I mean, you you don't typically think to yourself that a lion is somehow being immoral by coming into uh, the territory of another lion and uh, killing that lion and taking over the pride, provided that he's strong enough to do that. Uh, Typically, you don't have Uh, That sort of reaction, because if he's stronger than the other lion, why can't he do it? If he's just an animal, he's not subject to some kind of moral law that's outside of himself. If there is no uh, God giving him some sort of moral prescriptions, then why is what he's doing wrong? If he can do it, he can do it. Uh, If he can't, he can't, right? And so if, if you're looking at this situation of Jesus walking into the temple and looking at it as purely just a human form of oppression, what's the problem? Why is it an issue? Why is it a big deal? Well, ultimately, it's a big deal because it violates what God says uh, should be happening. Ultimately, there is a judge, there is a creator who did make us, who stands outside of us and does have the authority to tell us how to act. He gets to define what is right and wrong. He gets to define what is evil and good. And ultimately, when we violate his standard, uh, sometimes we uh we will in violating his standard do legitimate harm to other people but the main sin that we are uh, uh, performing when we violate his standard is we are sinning against him and, and, and in that respect, our sin against him is always greater than any human sin that we are ever going to commit against anyone else. Why is that the case? Because God is infinitely holy and righteous and good and just. And the distance between his uh, character and ours is much greater than the distance between our character and others. And so when we think about this, we ought to ask ourselves, uh, is my anger fundamentally being expressed in a God-centered way? Now, when you think through that, we ought to realize that the vast majority of times when we do confront other people, and we do confront other people in anger... What sort of language do we use when we confront? When we're confronting other people, we're angry about what they've done. Uh, What is the source of the scandal and how are we wording the source of the scandal? I can't believe you treat me that way. I don't deserve to be treated that way. No one deserves to be treated that way. How could you possibly uh, do this to me? After all I've done for you, I can't believe that you would treat me this way. No one deserves to be treated Uh, like garbage no one deserves to be treated like trash and i can't believe that you would do this to me now is there anything god-centered about that what is it about we're just talking about uh, i mean if we're not talking about god in this moment why shouldn't they treat you that way they obviously liked it right they obviously wanted to so what right do you have to tell them what to do if you're not going to appeal to some sort of standard outside of yourself, if you're not going to appeal to some sort of priorities outside of yourself, uh, if they're able to treat you in that way and they enjoy treating you that way, shouldn't they be able to do so, right? So that's the point. Now, uh, what this tells us is that as we are thinking about the sort of anger that we have, if it's going to be righteous anger, if it's going to be the kind of anger that Jesus have has, you ought to sound like Jesus when you're confronting others. That's the point. If we want to have anger that is like Jesus and we can know and be confident that it really is righteous, we ought to sound like him. Now, what difference would it make in our relationships if we did sound like him? Uh, instead of talking about how terrible the sins of others are against us and uh, how much they hurt our feelings and uh, and we can't believe that they would do that and they're scandalized by that and uh, we don't deserve this and everything else, uh, don't you think? that you could be much more confident that your anger is really righteous if you sounded the way Jesus did uh, so say someone sins against you and you say uh, your husband you say uh, honey I'm I love you and I care about you but I know that when you act this way it doesn't honor the Lord and he doesn't um, he doesn't take sin lightly and, and and he doesn't have a flippant attitude towards Attitude towards sin, and i 'm concerned about what this says about your relationship uh, with him and i 'll be praying for you now How does that come across uh, compared to the types of uh, ways that I know that we 're typically commonly responded uh, uh, typically uh, commonly tempted to respond I mean as we think about Uh, the kind of sin that others commit against us, if we want to know that we are righteous in the way that we are confronting, we have to at least start by examining the way that we confront, uh, the way that we stand in opposition against the actions of others. And if we are truly people who know uh, the depths of the sin that we have against God and how uh, desperately we want the kind of forgiveness that He extends to us, uh, then wouldn't that affect the way we speak? That's the point. So wouldn't it affect the way we speak? And so, uh, what is, uh, what should we be doing when we're confronting other people? I mean, ultimately, we can be vindicating ourselves as the point, or we can be vindicating God's character and calling others to uh, repentance. And so, the, the the question that we ought to ask ourselves as we're trying to think through uh, is: Our anger really righteous? Is the question? Is am I am I uh, am I Expressing my anger in a God-centered way, reflecting God-centered priorities, acknowledging that God is the chief person who is being offended in any instance of human sin. So as we're thinking through these things, we need to ask ourselves, am I expressing my uh, confrontation? Am I expressing my anger in a God-centered way? And if not, that's probably a good indication that this really isn't about God at all. This is just about me and I probably want to be God at that point, and am angry that uh, others are not treating me as if I am. Now, the fourth question we ought to ask as we're thinking through uh, whether or not our our anger is righteous, and and as I've said, we, we you need we need to realize that all of these things need to be true at the same time. You can't just camp on one and and say, okay, I think that one fits, and so it's probably okay. There's there's plenty of ways that we can distort. Um, uh, Righteous anger and it can turn sinful pretty quickly. But the fourth sort of question we ought to ask is the question, is your anger the result of properly ordered affections? Now, in some ways, this is a mirror image to the last criteria that we had. And the last criteria we have is uh, attempting to to evaluate how we're expressing our anger, whether verbally or in terms of our actions. Is it primarily being expressed in a way that would be very clear and obvious to everyone around us that we're our priorities are to vindicate god 's character and he 's the primary one being offended but this would reflect the internal attitude, so you can you can confront in a god centered way and have your heart that 's really just not uh, attached or uh, motivated by the priorities of God at all, right? So you can go through the motions and and just uh, mouth words that in many ways sound like the words that Jesus is using in this sort of situation uh, that, that seem to formally express a concern for God, as Pastor Kevin read in the passage today, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So this, there, there, is a, there, there are ways in which we can just uh, express um, an honor for God with our lips, and we can confront other people, uh, expressing a concern to vindicate the character of God, uh, but then we ought to ask ourselves uh, internally, in terms of what's motivating us, Are is this anger the natural product of affections which are ordered in the way God wants them to be ordered? So this principle is basically the internal aspect of the last principle. Is your anger the natural result of a heart which is aligned to the purposes and priorities of God? Would people observing your anger... Conclude that it stems from a deep love for God, a desire for faithfulness to His purposes, or would they conclude that it's essentially self-centered? Right. So, notice what the text says. Uh, the disciples remembered what what uh, remembered that it was written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." Now, the word "zeal" uh, in the Greek is "zealous," uh, which indicates an intense, positive interest in something. Uh, therefore, we ought to ask ourselves: Is our anger the result of a heart that has an intense positive interest in uh, God's character, his plans, his purposes? Is it the kind of thing that objective godly people would look at and say, that's obviously not self-motivated, that's obviously not self-centered, that's obviously about God and not just a, a temper tantrum that this person is having or an adult fit? Now, uh, I was traveling a bit yesterday and I was uh, working through some of this material with some friends and uh, a friend of mine, I was asking them for some examples of uh, uh, of times when they thought that uh, people had expressed godly anger towards uh, them or something along those lines. And, and a friend of mine was basically describing a situation early on in his Christian life where he was, um, he's depressed, he's kind of married and uh, married at this point of his life and depressed. And uh, he doesn't really feel like going to church and so he doesn't go to church and sends his wife to go to church without him. And so, uh, if you're you're in that kind of situation, and there's no real good reason uh, why a spouse isn't going to church, and you're going all by all on your own, all by yourself, people do ask, you know, what's happening there? Why is why is it just you? Why is it not the other person? And so, uh, the, his wife determined she wasn't going to fudge it at all. She was just going to be honest and uh, tell people what's happening. And so, one of the elders at the church asked her, you know, where's um, We'll call him Steve. Where's Steve? Uh, and she was just she just honestly said, "Oh, he he just didn't feel like coming, so he didn't come. He stayed home." Uh, so uh, Steve was deeply, or the elder at this point was grie- deeply grieved about uh, the fact that here you have a, a man who's supposed to be a faithful leader of his family, uh, who's sending his uh, his wife to worship without him, and he has no good reason to come other than he just doesn't feel like it. And doesn't want to. And so he calls up Steve and he tells him uh, in a bit of an animated way. Uh, you need to get up here right now. Uh, I, like There is no reason for you to be at home. You need to come right now. We're going to be waiting on you. And we're not going to actually start until you get here. And so everyone's going to stay here and wait. Uh, get up here right now. Right? And so um, my friend at that point... Um, not really having a good uh, answer to that sort of thing, just responded by saying, okay, see you in a few minutes. Uh, But uh, now the point of that is just to say that there are obviously times where uh, people sin ought to affect us in a similar sort of way, and I imagine that we do need to have uh, conversations with individuals that are not just completely uh, passionless. Uh, there are times where where uh, people ought to be able to hear uh, from the way that we're communicating that we do have a zeal for their. Uh, is ill for God, is ill for his purposes, and a fierce sort of love for them that will not allow them to make uh, silly, uh, sinful excuses for unfaithfulness. Uh, But the point here is that objective godly outside observers would probably not conclude that that elder was simply just letting off steam, right? Objective, godly observers would probably not just conclude he's having a bad day or is just sick of uncommitted church members. Uh, you know, objective, godly outside observers would probably look at that situation and say, "That's exactly what needed to happen." And you know, it could have been received poorly. It could have been received well. Praise the Lord, it was received well. But it did need to happen there. Uh, so, what we ought to ask ourselves is, would uh, not would anyone? Look at our anger and say, "Is it the result of properly ordered affections I mean obviously sometimes people don 't like it when you 're zealous for the things of God, and they don 't appreciate it none too much and you know i don 't think that when Jesus is responding in the way he 's responding, the temple leaders and those who are benefiting from the extortion of the of the people appreciate it uh, appreciate what he 's doing, but the point is that uh, would objective godly outside observers think that this is net this is Obviously, the natural result of a heart that loves God loves his purposes, loves his people, or is this just uh, some kind of uh, self centered uh, you know self centered self motivated uh, kind of uh, unrighteous uh, pity party that's happening or letting off steam or having a bad day or whatever else. And so we ought to ask ourselves, is, is your anger the result of properly ordered affections? Is it the natural thing that would happen uh, as a result of someone who intensely and fiercely loves God and uh, wants nothing more than to please God and to honor Him with their life? Is this a natural extension of that? Now, The final thing I think we want to ask ourselves as we are trying to uh, evaluate our righteous anger, at least from this passage, in order to try to help us to determine whether or not our anger is really righteous. The last sort of question we ought to ask ourselves is the question, is your angry response sanctioned by divine authority. So is your angry, I'll say it again, is your angry response sanctioned by divine authority? Now, uh, when Jesus comes into the temple, sees what's happening, sees the sin that's happening, uh, confronts them in a God-centered way, uh, as a result of the zeal that's in his heart for the purposes of uh, his father, Uh, when Jesus does that, uh, the Jews, they don't just uh, say, oh, I guess he doesn't like... uh, like the tables or something like that, they, they, they are the ones who are in charge of this religious system. And so they, they naturally, they, they do ask him to give some sort of explanation for why he's doing what he's doing. So uh, verse 18 says, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, Jesus answered, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you, you will raise it up in three days. Uh, When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Uh, So the point being is that on the face of it, this is a perfectly uh, reasonable, I say on the face of it, so that's important, but on the face of it, it's a perfectly reasonable question that the Jews are asking Jesus. So you have someone who's coming into uh, the temple at this point, overturning tables, making a whip, uh, driving people out, driving the cattle out, and everything else. Uh, You may want to ask him, Um, Why you're doing what you're doing. So obviously, Jesus is presenting himself as an individual who has the authority to speak for God and act for God. Uh, More so than that, he's, he's not presenting himself as a hostile outsider. So he's not like presenting himself as someone like a Roman who's just coming in there and just wants to mess everything up because uh, he doesn't like Jews or something like that. Or he thinks you're crazy for being monotheist and not polytheist or something like that. Or he just wants to cause some destruction. Or maybe he just doesn't like people like you in general. Or he's not just some kind of hostile kind of outsider. Jesus is not presenting himself as that. Uh, But he is presenting himself as someone within the religious tradition who is decisively acting in an authoritative manner. So he presents himself as a prophet. That's what he's doing. And now God has obviously spoke to the people through prophets in the past. And he doesn't expect people just to take their word for it that they're speaking for God, right? So God has sent prophets in the in the past uh, to speak to his people and to speak to Pharaoh and everything else. And he doesn't just expect them to say, hey, I'm speaking for God. Oh, well, if you're speaking to God, I'm going to listen to everything you say and do everything you say, right? He doesn't obviously expect people to interact with prophets in that way. You say you're a prophet. You say you have the words of God. You say what God told you to do this. Well, we better do with it, right? That's not the expectation that God has. Um, when God has spoken... Uh, through prophets in the past, the point is he doesn't expect them just to take it, take them at their word. Uh, but then he does give them signs to perform, in order to help establish them as God's messengers. And so uh, he, he, there's typically signs that they're going to perform, like when Moses is sent before Pharaoh, he's given a series of signs. And one of the. So that Pharaoh will know that he's not just making this up and just saying, "Hey, I think God said this." Uh, he's actually giving the actual words of God. So he gives him a series of signs. One of them is that he's going to take his staff, put it on the gro- staff, put it on the ground. It's going to turn into a serpent. Right? Uh, Moses' question is a very legitimate one: How is Pharaoh going to know that you've sent me? Well, take the staff, turn it into a surface, serpent. Serpent. Uh, take your hand, put it in your robe, pull it out, it's going to become leprous, right? How is he going to know you're, from, you're a prophet from God, you're speaking God's word? Uh, you give him the serpent staff, leprous hand, the ability to turn water into blood. So these are the signs that he's given so that uh, any reasonable person looking at that will have some way of saying, uh, "I, you know, I can't do those things. Something important may be happening here. I really do need to pay attention. Now, when God seeks to establish Samuel as a, a prophet before the Lord, uh, the Bible says that uh, God... Uh, Gave him the ability to predict the future, and none of his he allowed none of his words to fall to the ground and so God wanted people to know that he 's establishing Samuel as a prophet. They better listen to him he 's speaking god 's word, and so uh, how are they going to know well they 're going to either have a sign or wonder or they 're going to he 's going to make some sort of prediction and they 're going to see that it 's going to happen every time right. It's not just going to uh, fall to the ground and, uh, hey, you know, this guy's like 50-50 or something. No, it's going to happen every time. Uh, What were the tests given to determine whether or not a prophet was actually speaking to God? One, are they able to perform signs and wonders? Two, uh, do they actually happen? Right, I mean, is this a legitimate sign or wonder? Uh, is the prediction that they're making does it actually happen? Uh, one strike and you're out, right? So it's not it's not as if there's like this uh, idea that you can mess up a few times and hey, no one's perfect and sometimes we don't hear these things right and all that. No, here's the issue: one strike you're out. Make one bad prophecy, you're false prophet. That's how the people would know because it's a very serious thing to claim to speak for God. And so. Uh, when God in the past had sent prophets, he wants them to know here's a means by which you're going to know whether or not that what they're doing and, and saying is coming from me. You, they, you need to see what kind of sign they're, they're going to perform. Uh, so it's a very natural question, therefore. The point is, it's a very natural question that Jews are asking Jesus at this point. Here you are coming in. Um, you're speaking authoritatively for God. Don't make my father's house a house of trade, right? So he's identifying that this is a, a word uh, that is coming from their shared father. He's not a hostile outsider. Uh, he's turning over temple, uh, turning over tables, uh, disrupting uh, the worship that they're having there, if you want to call it that. And so they're, they're going to ask him, what kind of sign do you show us for doing these things? And now the obviously the question behind the question is the question, by what authority are you doing these things? And so it's not just a simple matter of, Hey, show us a trick or something like that. It's, say, hey, if you're going to do all this, you need to be doing it on the basis of some authority. You've just claimed that God's your father. Um, uh, prove it, right? So uh, yet, so while, while I think that this is a perfectly reasonable question that they would be asking of Jesus, uh, Jesus knows that this question is ultimately not coming from hearts of faith, but from the very individuals who, are, uh, who will ultimately put him to death. Okay, so he, he he does know about the interaction that they have with John the Baptist. Uh, he does know that it's not a very friendly interaction. He does know the type of people that he's engaging with. I mean, typically when you're the type of people who can't seem to identify that, uh, you're, that extortion of God's people um, when they are coming to worship God is wrong. I mean, typically if you, you're interacting with that sort of people who feels free to rob God's people and oppress them in the way that they're doing, uh, typically they're not going to like it if you step in. And, and try to disrupt that in any way. So Jesus knows that ultimately, oh, this may be a legitimate question. It's not coming from a heart of faith, from the very individuals who put him to death. Uh, now, Jesus has authority to cleanse the temple because he's God, not just because he can perform a sign. Can Jesus perform signs? He can and he does. Uh, but Jesus obviously has the authority being God to do whatever he wants to do. And if he sees that this is in violation of uh, his worship, he has the right to do so. Someone needs to do it, right? So the temple needs to be cleansed. Obviously, the Jews should have known this. Uh, They should know that this should happen. Uh, They know that this is right to happen. Uh, Therefore, while he doesn't have to give them a sign technically because he is God and he can do whatever he wants to do and this affects the worship of him, uh, he doesn't have to give them a sign to do what's needed to be done considering who he is, yet at the same time he does give them a sign. But it is the kind of sign that will prove incomprehensible to those who do not trust the written word. So notice, uh, notice how the text says that uh, he has this dialogue with the Pharisees. They asked him to show him a sign, and ultimately he points to the crucifixion, which is just going to happen in three years, right? So uh, three years from now, you're going to put me to death, and you will see that that's a sign. Uh, now, they obviously misunderstand that sign and think he's talking about destroying the literal temple uh, and, and, and are wondering how in the world are you possibly going to uh, re Uh, raise this temple in three days when it took years and years to build it. Uh, But ultimately, this is a sign that Jesus gives to them to demonstrate his authority, yet it's a sign that's going to be incomprehensible to those who do not trust the written word uh, and are not aligned with the purposes of God. Now, in light of our purpose here today, considering Jesus as a model of righteous anger, when we consider acting in righteous anger, here's the point, we also have to think through issues of authority Now, Jesus obviously had direct authority from God to act as he did. However, as we consider acting to correct violations of God's standard, we need to be sure that we are operating within the sphere of authority that God has granted to us. In short... uh, it is a very reasonable question that the uh, Jews are asking at that point because if we are going to be acting to fix and correct injustices, we need to be sure that we have scriptural warrant, or some sort of divine sanction uh, that, from God to uh, use the means that we are going to be using to correct certain uh, problems. Now, I have um, had the chance in the past to do sidewalk counseling, abortion ministry, and Uh, And I will tell you that one of the most difficult sorts of ministries that you can possibly do or be involved in is sidewalk counseling outside of abortion clinics. It is a very surreal sort of experience to uh, see um, mothers walking through uh, abortion clinic doors and know that they're going to come out on the other side having murdered their children. Uh, It's a very surreal experience to see uh, two people walk in, one person walk out. Now, um, a person would have to have a very hard heart if they can be a uh, part of a ministry like that and not, not feel some sort of anger at Planned Parenthood, at the workers, at the doctors, at the death escorts the that volunteer their time to protect uh, murderous women from the only voice of reason they might encounter. So, I mean, just think about that. People volunteer and give up their time uh, to help walk women from their cars into the building and uh, try to prevent you from being able to talk to them and and talk in their ear and affirm them and tell them what they're doing, what's right. And these are volunteers, people that are volunteering to do this. And so, as I'm saying, I, I really do think you have to have a hard heart to be a part of that ministry and not feel any sort of... Anger at the at the workers, at the death squads, at the um, doctors that are involved in this, at the ultrasound technicians, and everything else. Now, uh, certainly, uh, I think if you've listened to the news and think, thought about this issue historically, you would realize that some people have, in response to this, uh, in, in response to this legitimate and actual evil, taken it upon themselves to bomb abortion clinics, shoot abortion doctors. And everything else. Now, uh, you ought to ask yourself: Is that righteous anger? Is that righteous anger that's being expressed in a righteous way? Well, certainly, uh, one might, as one might understand, uh, how it could be that a person could see that this is such a such an enormous evil that it, that it must be stopped and must be stopped through any means necessary. The Bible really has. Uh, never advocates vigilante justice. Uh, The the Bible never just uh, condones the sort of person who just on the basis of their own authority uh, sets out to uh, fix all the evil that there is in the world using any means necessary. And so when you think about this question of authority, it's entirely relevant to the discussion that we are having at this point. Uh, We ought to ask ourselves is your righteous anger, is your angry response, is it sanctioned by divine authority? Do you have authority to express the anger in the way that you want to express it or feel like it needs to be expressed? And certainly you can think of countless examples at this point that are very relevant to the kind of discussion that we're having. That would be an extreme example of of, of a type of situation where uh, the anger might be righteous but might be expressed in an unrighteous way. Now, as we consider the subject righteous anger, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that most of our anger is selfishly motivated. It's a reaction of a prideful posture and stance towards the world. Instead of seeking God's kingdom and seeking his righteousness, we are more often seeking our own kingdom and our own righteousness. Instead of wanting God what God wants when he wants it, we do want what we want when we want it. Um, far too often we find ourselves far more zealous... Uh, to exalt our will in the world then we are uh, seeking to exalt God's will. Uh, we respond in, in, in sinful anger to violations of our standards instead of God's standards. Our anger is out of control, and unprincipled, and way out of proportion to the offense. Our anger is self-centered instead of God-centered. It's not the natural product of hearts which are saturated with godly affections, but the result of hearts which are dominated by selfli- uh, selfishness. Uh, we, we, we really are a frustrated people who live in the midst of a frustrated people. And if I am talking to you today, I mean, there is a sense in which this is true of all of us to some degree. Uh, there's no one here who has completely escaped uh, all of the outward manifestations or the inward uh, manifestations of anger that's in our heart. Uh, there's probably not a day that goes by where we're not tempted to be frustrated or impatient or irritable or rude, but then there, there there is a sense in which some of us deal with this more than others and we do know uh, some who deal with this more than others. And, and if this does characterize you, if I'm talking to, is, if as I'm talking about uh, righteous anger, sinful anger today, you would think to yourself, I am an angry person. this is talking to me. Uh, I, I would want you to, to know that there is hope for angry people. We don't have to live our lives dominated by uh, sinful anger. We don't have to be defined in these ways. Uh, It it is possible to live lives which are characterized by love and joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faithfulness, uh, self-control, but there really is no shortcut to it, right? I mean, the only way that we are going to be people who are uh, gentle and forgiving and not defined by anger is going to be, Uh, if at some point we come to see the nature of our offense against God. There really is no shortcut to that. Uh, The only way to really deal with anger is to at some point uh, realize that it is our anger which put Jesus on the cross. Uh, It is our anger which put Jesus to death. Um, It it is our anger that ultimately uh, is uh, the very thing which Jesus came to die for. And if we do understand uh, the depth of our sin against Jesus and, and the extent and the scope of his forgiveness against us, that uh, that is our only hope for really living lives that are not just dominated by selfishness and sinfulness. And, and, and that's the only hope that we have of loving other people uh, in the way that Jesus loved us, is if somehow we do come to love God, appreciate what he has done for us, uh, value that to the extent to where we uh, not are, are are no longer going to be aligning our hearts and our purposes with the purposes of ourself, but living for the glory of God and uh, seeking the good of others. And so the good news is that God did send his son to uh, transform a self-centered people into a people who can truly um, be set free from the bondage to anger and any other sin that there is. And so there's nothing that's really more counter to the gospel than uh, anger. We do know that Jesus... Tells us that anger is essentially hatred, and that no one who is born of God makes a pattern of these things. And so, as we think about the the anger that still remains in our own hearts, uh, I, I I do pray that we could, by God's grace, begin to put to death um, the the anger that still resides. Uh, God stands ready to forgive us if we just ask Him. Uh, let's pray, Lord. We we do. Th-
0: 18 plus.